Our scripture this morning will come from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Today marks our third lesson in this series on equality, unity, and responsibility that I've entitled Colorblind. And I want to remind you that the choice of title is, again, because our theme this year is 2020 Vision. And so we've chosen a sermon series titles that reflect the idea of sight and vision. And, and the, we're not trying to imply that we should ignore our racial diversity. Instead, we're trying to help us understand that the most important thing we focus upon is our unity in Christ. Now today, I mentioned, we'll mark our third lesson in this series. Next week, we will conclude this series and we will also be conducting a, a, a unity forum, is what we're calling it. It'll be in place of Ministers of the Roundtable next Sunday night. We encourage you to come. It's, it's not a worship service. It's, it's going to be a discussion with six, uh, six uh, men from this congregation are going to gather together and discuss some pertinent questions. In fact, we have invited you to submit questions that you would like to ask by placing them in the box out there at the Welcome Center, or I believe there's a way you can do it online as well. And if you would like to ask a question pertinent to, to subjects related to, to race and, and equality, unity in the church, that sort of thing, please feel free to submit those questions. However, today is the last day to do that so that we can prepare for the forum. So there is a bit of urgency to it, but we, we invite you to do so. The forum will consist of uh, six individual men from this congregation, uh, as to my knowledge, those six men will be uh, Wayne Reeves, James Morris, John Iverson, myself, Ben Hogan, and Doug Cole. And so we encourage you to, to come and be a, uh, be a part of that forum, listen to the discussion that will be had next Sunday night, October the 18th. Today I want to start with a story I heard about a fisherman. He was really good at fishing, so apparently it wasn't Skip Jackson. Just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He was really good at fishing, and people became suspicious 
of the numbers he was bringing in every day on that lake. So a, a game warden decided to disguise himself and go out on a fishing trip with him. And during that fishing trip, they got out to the middle of the lake, and that fisherman reached under his seat in the boat, pulled out a stick of dynamite, lit it, and threw it in the lake. Of course, just a few seconds later, it went kaboom, and all of these fish began floating to the surface, and he grabbed his net and just scooted around the lake and scooped them up. And that game warden, that game warden revealed himself in the moment and said, Do you know how many laws you've just broken? I could put you in jail for years. And that fisherman calmly reached under his seat, grabbed a stick of dynamite, lit it, and handed it to the warden and said, are you going to talk or are you going to fish? And the whole point of me telling you that is this. Oftentimes, we are better at talking than we are at acting. We might say all the right things, but do we always do the right things? That's where, where I want your mind to go today as we continue this study of equality, unity, and responsibility in the church. Because I imagine that for all of us, there is some area of life where we talk better than we act. Maybe it's in the area of health. And you've said for years, like I have, that you're going to lose weight. But you never do the hard work of actually changing your diet or exercising or whatever it is that you need to do for your health. Or maybe it's in the area of your finances. And, and maybe you've claimed that you're going to get better at managing your money, but you never develop a budget, or, or, or you never start putting money back for savings, or whatever strategy it is you need to do to improve your finances. Or something probably a little more closer to home, maybe you complain about our government all the time, but Election Day rolls around, and you refuse to participate because you believe your vote doesn't count. See, there are a lot of areas of our lives where we talk better than we act. And I think and fear, I should say, that such is especially true when it comes to matters of race in the context of the church. When it comes to racial equality, unity, and responsibility, I fear the church has talked more than it has fished, if you'll allow me to appeal to the story we started with. And maybe, maybe that's happened because in our zeal to imitate the doctrinal and ecclesiastical practices of the first century church that denominations have ignored for centuries, we've forgotten to imitate some of the social and relational practices of the first century church as well. So what I want to do today is I want us to just look at the first century church and see how it handled issues of race so that we can imitate the practices here in the 21st century. See, one thing we pride ourselves on is restoration. We believe in restoring the first century church, as we should. Because that's the church... That's the model. So how do we restore the model today when it comes not just to the teachings and practices that we, that we engage in in formats such as this? How do we restore the relationships that were modeled in the first century? 
There are three particular events in the story of the first century church we're going to focus on today, and bear with me. This is a sensitive subject matter these past few weeks, so I'm not afraid to go long. (laughs) Who's kidding? I wasn't afraid to go long before. Let's start here. The church must restore communal sympathy. If I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. You can read in the first seven verses about an event that unfolded early in the life of the church. It's an event that led to the selection of seven men to oversee a, uh, a benevolent program for the church. Uh, I normally would read it, but for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of it instead. I encourage you to read it yourself. See, what happens here is the church in Jerusalem has a benevolence program which provides food for widows. That is a laudable ministry. If you journey through Scripture, you'll see the emphasis that's placed on Christians taking care of widows. And this ministry is in keeping with the church's spirit of benevolence that that is shown throughout the early chapters of Acts. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 mention how the church was known for its uh, care of everyone, for its benevolence towards others. And you have to remember that during this time period, during, during the first century, to be a widow, especially one without children, was usually a sentence to poverty. No one was more afflicted socioeconomically than a widow. Now, when we get to Acts chapter 6, you may notice that the text is going to identify two types of widows. The English Standard Version is going to refer to one as Hellenists and the others as Hebrews, I believe. But the New International Version distinguishes between these two groups by using the phrase Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. It's two different groups of widows. Now, let me explain what that means. A Hebraic Jew is a Jew who is native to Palestine, who has lived in Palestine their whole life, who primarily speaks Aramaic, and who prides themselves on retaining the customs of their fathers, of their ancestors. A Hellenistic Jew, on the other hand, is a Jew who lived outside of Palestine, who primarily spoke Greek, and who had adopted some of the customs of the cultures in which they lived. But here's the thing. Every Jew, regardless of whether or not you grew up in Palestine or you grew up somewhere else, every Jew's deepest desire was to retire in Jerusalem. They wanted to retire in the holy city. And so you have this influx of Hellenistic Jews coming from outside of Palestine, while you also have this abundance of of Hebraic Jews who have still lived there, and now they've all gathered towards Jerusalem. So the difference between Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews is strictly cultural. And the reason there's the mixture is because they all want to live in Jerusalem. Now, unfortunately, an element of discrimination surfaced in the administration of this benevolent program. What ends up happening is the Hellenistic widows are getting overlooked while the Hebraic widows are being well taken care of. I don't think that this was an intentional oversight. I I think it was accidental. I mean, think about how easy it is for a widow who doesn't speak the same language as everybody else 
who doesn't necessarily have family in town, how easy it would be for her to get overlooked. So I don't think it was intentional, but it happened. And notice how the apostles handled the situation. When they learned of this problem, when the, when the complaint was filed and mentioned, they did not ignore it to see if it would go away. They immediately began to do something about it. In other words, the apostles, being Hebraic Jews themselves, demonstrated sympathy for their Hellenistic sisters in Christ who were culturally different and in the minority. Now let me explain my use of sympathy here. When we think of sympathy, we typically think of feelings of pity and sorrow for somebody else. That is one meaning of sympathy, but sympathy also can be defined as the act or capacity of entering into or sharing the feelings or interests of another. That's the sense in which I'm using sympathy today. The capacity of entering into and sharing in the feelings or interests of another. And the apostles here, they demonstrate sympathy for this group that's in the minority within their congregation. They, they hear the issue they raise, and they immediately try to help resolve it. And that sympathy goes beyond just the apostles. It includes the whole congregation. Do you know why? Because the apostles enlisted the whole congregation to help them resolve this issue. In other words, they didn't select a specific demographic to come and, and help them figure this out. They opened up the situation to the entire congregation. They summoned the full number of disciples, we're told, in verse 2. And the solution that was developed involved the selection and appointment of seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, according to verse 3. What's interesting is that the names of those men who are chosen, who are selected by the entire congregation to fulfill this task, the names of those selected are all Greek names. And it suggests that all the men who were selected were Hellenistic Jews rather than Hebraic Jews. Now that's interesting, because if you look at the qualifications for the men, ethnicity was not one of them. Language was not one of them. Cultural leaning was not one of them. It seems to indicate that when the congregation came together and said, here's a problem affecting this group in our congregation, here's a problem affecting this cultural dynamic within our congregation, then we're going to, uh, in our sympathy towards them, our solution is going to cater towards them. What I mean is, the congregation seems to make a deliberate choice to demonstrate sympathy for those who have been neglected by selecting men who would ensure, because they did meet the qualifications, ensure that they were no longer neglected. Maybe they chose men from this particular cultural dynamic 
because those men would be more sensitive to these widows who face cultural and linguistic barriers while living in Jerusalem. Here's the point. When the first century church faced a situation that exposed a cultural conflict between its members, it responded sympathetically to those it negatively affected. And in so doing, I believe they fulfilled an expectation of the body of Christ that Paul identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, when he said, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. See, Paul is saying that the church is to be a people who are so intimately connected and who care so deeply for one another that they enter into both the joys and the sorrows of each other's lives. And as I reflect on that passage from 1 Corinthians 12, it makes me realize that I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting and at times afraid because their skin color dictates how some people will treat them. And I have brothers and sisters in Christ who serve in law enforcement who are hurting and at times afraid because the wrongs committed by some that share their profession have tainted the way people look at them. And the question I've had to ask myself is am I suffering with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I hurting with them? I want you to look quickly, quickly with me at Romans chapter 12, which was our scripture reading just a moment ago. Look quickly. Whew, why can I not say quickly? Look quickly at Romans chapter 12, particularly verses 9 through 18. Now, some of your Bibles may title this section Marks of a True Christian or Behave Like a Christian or even Love in Action. I want you to notice that in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, this whole section begins with a call for our love to be genuine or without hypocrisy. And I believe the following verses describe what genuine love entails. And what I've tried to do over the past few months is consider how I, coming from my very specific and particular racial perspective, should apply these instructions in relation to those who are coming from a different racial perspective than myself. And here's what I came up with. Genuine love means that I should abhor evil equally with them. Romans 12, verse 9. Genuine love means that I should honor their experiences by validating them rather than ignoring them. Romans 12, 10. Genuine love means that I should pray for them and with them. Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. Genuine love means that I should hurt for them and with them. Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Genuine love means that I should be an advocate of peace for them and with them. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. See, when Paul said, let love be genuine, he was calling for us to love without pretense. And such love requires positive participation in the Christian community not just convenient platitudes. 
And I believe that kind of love is displayed in Acts chapter 6 when the church realized that some in their congregation were being neglected. And I think we need to restore that kind of sympathy, that kind of appreciation, that kind of recognition. Because all I can say is it took events this year for me to get to the point where I would do that. And I apologize for my hesitancy to do that. But as I journey through the book of Acts and look at the first century church, I don't just see a church that had sympathy for those who were being neglected in their congregation, but I see a church who understood its mission. And I believe the church must restore cross-cultural mission. Go to Acts chapter 8 with me, if you will. Before, Actually, I need you in Acts chapter 1 first. Before Jesus ascended, he gave an assignment to his disciples. You'll read that assignment in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It's there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that Jesus begins by prophesying, if you will, what's going to unfold in Acts chapter 2. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That happens in Acts chapter 2. And then he says there in the second half of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus charged his disciples with the task of sharing the good news about his death and resurrection locally. That's a reference to Jerusalem. Domestically. That's a reference to Judea. Cross-culturally, that's a reference to Samaria. And internationally, that's the reference to the ends of the earth. Now Jesus gave that assignment specifically to the apostles, to the 11 apostles that were there with him when he ascended. We know this based on the context of Acts chapter 1. You can go back to verse 2 of Acts chapter 1, and reference is made to the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. And from that point forward, the pronoun they is used in reference to the apostles when the author is narrating, and the pronoun you is used in reference to the apostles when Jesus was speaking, as was the case here in verse 8. Now here's what I find interesting. The apostles did a really good job at that local and domestic mission. But they were a little slow in implementing the cross-cultural and international aspects of that mission. The cross-cultural component of the Great Commission called for the message of the gospel to be shared with the Samaritans. And we noted last week that the Jews and Samaritans hated each other because uh, the Jews despised the Samaritans for their, uh, for their, their history, for the development of their race, from the uh, union of Jews who remained in Palestine during the captivity and Gentiles who moved into that area. They were not pure-blood Jews, and more importantly, they were not typically purely devoted to God. Some of the culture of the Gentiles crept into their spiritual beliefs and practices. So the Jews despised the Samaritans because they were not pure, both ethnically and spiritually. 
Meanwhile, the Samaritans hated the Jews because when the Jews returned from captivity and went about the process of building Jerusalem and building the temple, they refused to let the Samaritans help. They refused to let the Samaritans help because they weren't pure. And so the Samaritans despised the Jews for being quite snobbish. And here we are entering the, in, in the time of Jesus, entering the age of the church, and that hatred still exists. And yet Jesus declares to the apostles that they're going to take the gospel to Samaria. And despite the fact that the Jesus' assignment specifically mentions Samaria, some five years or so after the church's institution, no one had taken the good news there yet. In fact, Samaria didn't become an evangelistic target until persecution drove Christians out of Jerusalem. Now go with me to Acts chapter 8. Look at what happened in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Following the martyrdom of Stephen, we're told that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, that's a reference to the entire church, that's a reference to Christians, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, we don't know exactly why the apostles remained in Jerusalem. We assume it was for a positive reason, such as to show that they were unafraid of persecution, that they were willing to stand up and not be moved, as they had done before the Sanhedrin before. Or maybe they stayed in Jerusalem because they knew that the good news still needed to be proclaimed there, not only to the Jews, but to anybody that came to Jerusalem. Some have even suggested that the persecution was mainly directed toward those who were Hellenistic Jews which would include Stephen, who was martyred, and would include Philip, who we're going to talk about in a minute. And so if the persecution was just directed at Hellenistic Jews, then Hebraic Jews, like the apostles, would not have been driven out. We don't know the exact reason why the apostles stay. We don't assume it to be a bad reason. But regardless of the reason, the apostles remained in Jerusalem and the church scattered, which resulted in some new evangelistic opportunities. So in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, we're told that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, no one had ever preached to Samaritans before, at least not since Jesus had been there. And I believe the reason they hadn't is because the first Christians were all Jews, and despite their new identity in Christ, they struggled to let go of some old mindsets, particularly old bigotries. So God had to find someone who didn't have that baggage, and that's where Philip enters the story. Philip was apparently a Hellenistic Jew, one born and raised outside of Palestine, and thus one whose prejudices against the Samaritans would not have been as strong as those of a Hebraic Jew. And as a result of Philip's evangelistic efforts in Samaria, we're told that many Samaritans believed and were baptized in verse 12 of Acts chapter 8. That's a rundown of what happens with Philip in Samaria. 
What stood out to me about Philip's work is that he intentionally adjusted his missional focus to meet his geographic location. When he arrived in Samaria, he saw his community as an opportunity, and he intentionally began pursuing the souls that were there in his community, even if that meant ministering to a different demographic than he was used to. In my lifetime, which some say is not that long, but sure does feel long as my body breaks down, in my lifetime, I have seen churches do the exact opposite of what Philip did. When the community around them changed, they relocated. They chose to follow their members to a different community rather than adjust their mission to meet their current community. And I think the lesson for the church today, not specifically trying to target Buford Church of Christ, but the church in general, the Lord's church everywhere, I think a lesson for us today is that we need to be willing to adjust our missional focus to meet the needs of our community, even if the community changes. That may mean the church has to venture out of its cultural, ethnic, and racial comfort zones for the sake of saving souls. But that's exactly why Jesus gave specific instructions for his disciples to be witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just around the world, but also in Samaria. And in order for us to do that, we must think missionally like Philip. And I believe Philip's mentality is summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul's not saying that he conformed to culture. Instead, he's saying that he avails himself of any and every missional opportunity. If we want to restore the first century church, then we must restore this mentality when it comes to our mission. In other words, there should be no barriers in our minds of the type of person we're willing to evangelize to. And I'm not assuming there is in your mind. I just think we don't say it enough. That our missional targets should be any and every soul that exists, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their cultural preferences or their cultural heritage, regardless of their skin color. And I think Philip demonstrated that for us in Acts chapter 8. One final thing I think the church needs to restore is congregational fellowship. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 2 as we talk about this section. In Galatians chapter 2, particularly in verses 11 through 14, we read about an incident that occurred when Peter 
visited the church in Antioch. Now, before we read this account, there are a couple things I want to remind you about Peter and a couple things I want you to know about the church in Antioch. First, let's talk about Peter. Peter delivered the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in that sermon, after he had instructed his audience what they needed to do to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, he went on to say in the very next verse that this opportunity to be saved was not only for the Jews, but also for all who are far off. Now, who was far off? Paul tells us who was far off in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says that, when he writes to Gentiles and says, you who are Gentiles in the flesh, you who were once far off, have now been brought near to the blood of Christ. So during his first sermon, Peter preached about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Let's not forget also that when it came time for someone to share the gospel with a Gentile for the first time, God chose Peter. It's interesting because Cornelius, who is that first Gentile convert, Cornelius was living in Caesarea. Paul was down in Joppa. There was a really skilled evangelist who also lived in Caesarea, the same town as Cornelius. That evangelist's name was Philip, the same guy that had just gone to Samaria. So if all God wanted to do was lead Cornelius to Christ... He could have gotten somebody across town to do it, named Philip. But it wasn't just about converting Cornelius. It was about converting Peter, too. Because if you recall, before Peter went to Caesarea, he had three dreams on a rooftop in Joppa that were all designed to show him that everyone is clean, that there is no race or nationality that doesn't have a place in the kingdom of God. And it wasn't until he experienced those dreams and realized that that he went to Cornelius' house, shared the good news, and the first non-Jewish family, aside from the Samaritans, were led to Christ. And Peter proclaimed that day in the house of Cornelius that truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter's had this story of coming to understand that people who weren't like him could be with him in faith, with him in the body of Christ. Now let's talk about Antioch for a moment. My favorite church in all of Scripture is the church in Antioch. Like the church in Samaria, this congregation was planted as a result of those persecuted Christians fleeing Jerusalem when Saul was going door to door. According to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21, the first Christians to arrive in Antioch only wanted to share the gospel with the Hebraic Jews. But some Hellenistic Christians arrived and began sharing the gospel with those Hellenistic Jews as well. And as a result, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the church in Antioch became a very diverse congregation. So diverse, in fact, that they developed a heart for the Gentiles. 
The church in Antioch was the first congregation to accept responsibility for evangelizing to the ends of the earth. You can see that in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, when they became the commissioning congregation for Paul and Barnabas' first missionary trip. So while Peter was the first individual to share the gospel with a Gentile, the church in Antioch was the first congregation to conduct a Gentile mission trip. And in time, the church in Antioch gained a sizable Gentile population. You can go to Acts chapter 15 and read how there were some men who left Jerusalem and went to Antioch because they wanted to correct those Gentile converts. They wanted to teach those Gentile converts that they needed to adhere to some Jewish customs, namely circumcision, in order to be saved. And that sparked what is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council, the events in Acts 15, where representatives from the church in Antioch had to meet with, represent, with the elders of the church in Jerusalem, as well as the apostles, to resolve this doctrinal conflict. So we have Peter, this guy who has said all the right things when it comes to the Gentiles. And he goes to visit this church in Antioch that is so well known for being a multi-ethnic congregation. And he's there fellowshipping with them in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12. He was eating with the Gentiles when he first arrived. He was fellowshipping with non-Jews. But then certain men came from James we're told. That means some Jewish Christians from the church in Jerusalem, over which James, the brother of Jesus, served as an elder, these men came to visit the church in Antioch. And we're told that when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles. In other words, Peter stopped fellowshipping with non-Jewish Christians when Jewish Christians showed up. He was picking and choosing with whom he would and would not have fellowship under certain circumstances. And as a result, Paul called him a hypocrite. Paul called him a hypocrite because he knew that Peter knew better. Not only had Peter preached on the acceptance of Gentiles into the church, and not only had he'd been the one to introduce Gentiles to the gospel, but he was also a pillar in the church that is described as being devoted to fellowship in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. It's as if those Jews came up from Jerusalem and pulled Peter aside and said, Brother, we heard about Cornelius. We, we agree that Gentiles can be Christians, but we don't have to go to the same church as them, do we? I mean, there's no reason they can't have their church over there and we can have our church over here and we can just be separate and distant. We don't really have to fellowship with them, do we? Does that sound like a situation that might happen today? You see, when I look at Peter's hypocrisy here in Galatians chapter 2, a hypocrisy built on fellowship, I can't help but remember what Jesus said what Jesus said would reveal 
his deity to the world. It's in John chapter 17, verse 21. He prayed that his current and his future disciples may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus indicated that his deity is evidenced by our unity. So one of the greatest threats to evidencing Christ's deity to the world is any prejudice, discrimination, or bigotry that prevents fellowship between believers. And I believe the point for us today is that we need to restore the spirit of hospitality that existed in the Antioch congregation. Hospitality is defined as the friendly reception and treatment of others. The church in Antioch was willing to welcome even Gentiles into the church. And even though Peter was the first one to preach and and, and lead a, a Gentile to Christ, he wasn't quite ready to fellowship with them permanently. The church needs to be more like the church in Antioch. And I'm not trying to say we haven't been. I'm just trying to tell you what the church today should look like in comparison to the church of the first century. We need to possess the welcoming spirit that the Antioch congregation possessed. And we need to remember that hospitality that a spirit of welcoming reception and, and, and friendly treatment is an expectation of all of God's children. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, amidst the passage we looked at earlier, says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's intentional pursuit of hospitality. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And if you recall, when you look at the qualifications of an elder, being hospitable is mentioned both in 1 Timothy's list and Titus's list. What this means for you and I today is that we need to be intentional about not only welcoming believers who are different ethnically, culturally, or racially than us, into the congregation, but we also need to be intentional about welcoming them into our lives and into our homes. I've had to face a harsh reality this year that I have not been very good about being intentional about fellowshipping with my African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. It's much easier for me to approach a Caucasian brother or sister and invite them to lunch with me after service on a Sunday or to invite them over to my house for a dinner. And I haven't done a very good job of intentionally thinking about my African-American brothers and sisters or, or my Korean brothers and sisters in Christ and including them in that same fellowship with me. And I'm sorry for that. But if I'm going to be like the church in Antioch and not like Peter, that's going to be something I have to change. 
This morning, I wanted us to look simply at the church in the first century because I believe we can see racial issues that they had to deal with, whether it's because of their own culture between the Hellenistic and Hebraic widows, or whether it's the, the integration of the Samaritans or the integration of the Gentiles. They all had to continually deal with racial bias and bigotry that existed even in the first century. And how did they handle it? That's what we need to emulate. And I realized something today. My first sermon in this series is pretty easy to swallow. It's pretty easy to accept that God sees impartially. And so we need to as well. My second sermon in this series is pretty easy to accept as well. That racism is sin. I think we can all get on board with that. It's much more difficult when we bring it home to a congregational level and challenge ourselves to consider whether or not we possess the sympathy toward those who are different than us. It's much more difficult to accept a lesson that's challenging us to consider whether or not we care about the souls of other people who are different than us. And it's much more difficult to, stand, to sit here and listen to a lesson that's challenging us to consider whether or not we are welcoming and hospitable to the, those who are different than us. See, the thing that we need to remember most of all is that as the church, we are the present manifestation of the kingdom of God. And when we think about the kingdom of God in its eternal state, when you picture yourself in heaven, what does your heavenly neighborhood look like? What do the people that are present with you in heaven look like? We need to remember that heaven will be colorblind. Because it's just going to be souls there. And in Revelation chapter 7, when John had this vision of heaven, he saw this great multitude there. And in verses 9 and 10 of Revelation chapter 7, he said there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. See, the kingdom isn't made for one type of person. The kingdom is for all. And if you're going to be part of the kingdom, there are responsibilities you possess in the way you love one another, in the way that you pursue lost souls, and in the way that you fellowship with one another. May we be a congregation that when it comes to the church is always colorblind. May we be a people who look forward to that glorious eternal kingdom comprised of every nation and tongue and people group there is. And if you're not part of that kingdom today, we invite you to join by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, 
and by being baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. If you have any need to respond to the invitation today, we extend it at this time, praying that we all will do whatever we need to to be ready for that day when Jesus returns. So if you need to respond, please come while together we stand and sing. every day still praying as I onward bound Lord plant my feet on higher ground Lord lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table and a higher plane than I have found Lord plant my feet on higher ground 